podcast of Antioch Church in Colorado Springs. If you've been impacted by this ministry and would like to support the work we're doing in Colorado Springs, you can give online at our website, antiochcos.com. We hope that the Lord ministers to you through this message. Well, I'm glad to be back for part two. And there's a lot of information that we're going to be going through again this morning. As you recall, for those of you that were here last uh, week, we laid kind of a foundation and talked about it in terms of our worldview. How do we see life? How do we understand the whole financial realm, both what we have and what we don't have? And so this week, we want to follow on with that. But what we've been doing is anchoring it into a concept and an understanding of a worldview. So last week, we focused mostly on the concept of a humanistic approach to life and the worldview that goes with that. So for those of you that may not have been here, I'm just going to do a quick review of a couple of those PowerPoint slides. And hopefully that'll help those that weren't here to really pick up and understand the basis of it. So first of all, what we looked at in terms of worldview was just an understanding of what a worldview is. And we looked at it and we understood also from the concept of building a building. If we want to build a solid building, we don't just start at ground level. If we do, we haven't really got a lot of understanding of how buildings should be built. And so the stones then that we lay in the foundation are often not good stones. They're not put together well. And if that happens, then the house that we build is not very stable. It has cracks in it. It has problems. And what we begin to see is that basically we've got an unstable house. Contrarily, if we anchor what we do into bedrock, and that goes with just the word that we just heard this morning, if we really anchor into him who is that bedrock, into Jesus, then we lay our foundation stones starting with the cornerstones of truth. Then the other stones begin to be laid in a way in which our lives can be built and stable and we have a strong and a solid house. So the difference between those two is dynamic. And in this sort of caricature, you don't see it so well, but it does give us a picture of what it's like and how we lay our foundations both for life, but also in our communities. And if we don't lay them well, we have to ask the question, what are we building? And so I showed a quick picture last week of this building that had no anchor into bedrock. This actually happened in Shanghai, China, and the guy wanted to save some money. So he put a foundation, you can see it there, and he put a few little toothpicks down into the ground, hoping that that would take the place of anchoring it into bedrock, and the results are obvious. So as I said last week, he told people when the building fell down, not a problem, you can move into one of the other buildings. Well, that probably wouldn't go so well either. All those buildings are built the same because that's how we do things in life, isn't it? If we do it once one way, we continue to do it that way usually. And so not anchoring into bedrock in this picture is very clearly depicted the results of it. And so as we talked about it last week briefly, we said that 
It's often the case even in our own spiritual lives or sometimes more evident in our children. They begin to understand the stories. They begin to understand the do's and the don'ts of Christianity. But have they ever anchored everything into bedrock? Do they understand not only what they believe, but why they believe what they believe? That is where the anchoring into bedrock and a biblical worldview becomes essential. I also mentioned last week this picture of the tree. And I think it's a good picture because it really helps us understand that the roots are the worldview. There we go. And our belief system is what we actually don't even see. You may remember if you were here last week, we talked about the little boy that was in that picture and he had glasses on and a, micro, or a magnifying glass. But we said that in that picture, there's actually five sets of lenses, not the three that we can see. The two that are in his eyes are the lenses we don't see, but they're the most important. And so that's the same with our biblical worldview. It's below ground. We don't tend to see it. But when situations arise, it's sort of that knee-jerk response that we immediately do. And so a lot of times we think, well, I've kind of anchored everything into God and, and I've, I've done this and I've done that. But it's that clear first response in the depths of our heart that it helps to reveal to us, do I really believe what I say I believe? In the pinch, do I respond in the way that God reveals to us and is my hope and my future anchored in him? And, that out of, and then out of that, we begin to see that the trunk becomes really the values. We talked about it last week that if a person does not believe or does believe in a God who is the anchor of all things, and we understand from Hebrews eleven six, he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. If that's deep in our hearts, then the values in our lives come out of that. And we realize that human beings and everything has value because it's we are created in the image of God. If we do that, we respect one another. We work together with one another. If we don't, and we don't believe there's a God, and we don't believe that he's put any value in human life, then just as we said, Things such as abortion become a non-issue. It's just tissue. There's no value assigned to it. And now my behavior becomes one where I just say, you know, I can abort this tissue because there's no value in it because there's no God. Whereas the fruit of that becomes then the fruit of death. Otherwise, if we believe in God, we begin, begin to see how that works its way up through the tree as well. So all of these things really serve as a foundational understanding of how we will live out our lives. Finally, I want to remind us of one last slide from last week, and that is on the humanist view of poverty. In this, you'll see one common word throughout all of these different aspects. You see, there's a lack of strength, there's a lack of education, there's a lack of this, a lack of that. One of the things that I mentioned last week is, if you see a lot of lack, 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 well, if it sounds like a duck, it is a duck, it's humanism. 
And so one of the things that we see in humanism is a focus on what we do not have, to pick up on Cedrone's word this morning, which was very appropriate. It's what do we have? It's what has God given us? And we tend to look at needs assessments, and they always point out what we are lacking, what we don't have. So in that, we have really been, I would say largely around the world, sold kind of a bill of goods. And the bill of goods is this, that everything comes down to what resources do you have? And typically what we say is he who dies with the most toys wins. That's humanism. Well, no, it's what do I do with what God has given me? And that's what it's all about. Not how many toys do I have, not how many resources, but what have I done with what God has given me? So this view, although if I had taken humanism off the top and presented it in many places around the world to Christian audiences, they'll say, yes, that's exactly what poverty is. That's exactly it. The reason that we tend to say that is because we've been told that by the media, by whomever, that it is all about resources. That is not true. So we have to begin to take that out of our thought process because the more you hear a lie, eventually you begin to believe it. All right, well, now let's take a look a little further. And I want us to take a look at a nation that began with a biblical worldview and began then to move to humanism. In the early U.S., our own country, we all know the story of the pilgrims and the forefathers that we had and how they came here so that they could worship God in freedom. They had a biblical worldview. But as things began to develop, that began to change. Well, sometimes we forget, what was it like in early America? We don't have time to do a history lesson this morning, but I want to give you a few key points. In the early U.S., there was virtually no poverty. Now, you might say, oh, I don't know about that. But Benjamin Franklin was one of our first ambassadors to France and to England. He wrote back to Jefferson and, and Madison, and he said, I've, I've experienced a very strange phenomena here. There are poor in the streets who are begging for money. We don't have such things. That's amazing. He was shocked. And the reason that he didn't, that he saw that and he was shocked by it is because there was a net within society to care for people. And so what there was was the church and the individuals and families took care of their own. I remember that well when my grandmother was no longer able to care for herself um, because of certain illnesses. She moved in with us and we loved it. The extended family was great. Today, that's all changed. We don't want to be put out. We don't want to have that burden. And so we've changed a lot of the approaches in our lives in small things such as that. As we look at that, though, we begin to see that in the early U.S., everyone was focused on empowerment, on equipping people, upon getting them back to work, finding opportunities for them. But if they couldn't, we had things such as poor houses. And the poor houses were there because we wanted people to have a safety net. But in that process, you couldn't game the system. If you did, 
you didn't get into the poorhouse. And the poorhouse was just for a week where you could come and stay, get on your feet, do some work, and what your work produced bought the food that you ate. But the biggest part of what that safety net was was families in church. And so in that process, we were taking care of our own. We were out in the streets. We knew the people. And we weren't allowed, interestingly enough, to even give donations to people unless you knew them. Now, you might think, what? Why would we have that? Because there was accountability. If you give money to somebody you don't know, you don't know if you're really helping them or hurting them. You don't know if they're gaming you. You don't know what's going on. There's a guy who sat up in Monument at the corner up there for years, and he was just taking money until somebody followed him, and he slipped out of his coveralls one day, got into a red sports car, and drove away. He made so much money gaming the system and gaming people's feelings that he was able to lead a quite a good life. Early America did not allow that. And so we, saw, we see how in all of these things, basically, our system changed, our way of looking at things changed, but the focus back then was to get people a job, get them some dignity in their lives so that they could again begin to work, sustain themselves, and take care of their families. So the biblical worldview in America began to change. About a century into that time, we began to see that changes were happening. In the early U.S., there was no welfare system. It wasn't necessary. Families took care of their own. But very shortly after that, things began to change. And what we saw was that there was a transition that people began to say, well, you know, mankind's good. It's just a bad system. And if we could change the system, you know, it's, it's them. It's not me. It's not you. It's them. And so they began to blame a system and began to try and find ways to verify that basically we all deserved to have what we needed, and if we didn't, then the system was bad. And so out of that, we began to change how we approach things. We began to look at it and realize that, well, all of these things need to have a new start. And people such as Horace Mann and others began to bring a humanistic bent even to the educational system. Now suddenly, everyone deserves, it's their right to have an education. Well, is it our right? No, not really. It's not a right. It has nothing to do with rights. It's something we work for. It's something we strive for. Our young people, that's their goal. They want to see that. But these things are not inalienable rights. They are things that God puts out there that he wants us to help one another in but they're not something that we can take for granted. And so as you look at this, you begin to see that people um, began to feel like they had a right to all these things, that it's owed to me. I expect it now. And so as that began to grow, and we began to see that basically the, the whole approach of North America was changing, and we see that there was a focus now on the need to redistribute wealth. That began to happen already 100 years ago. 
We hear it more often today, but that was the focus. How do we take from those who have and give to those who don't? Without any understanding of stewardship and how to do that. And so once we began to look in that way, then social distinctions were drawn up. There were those who had and they were bad, those who didn't and they were the ones that deserved mercy without understanding that there's a dynamic that happens in society that certain people create jobs, other people have jobs through that and that it, there's a balance to be found. So the way to end evil was, if I can get that to go back, was to redistribute to wealth. Well, how does that happen? Usually through taxation. And so now, in the, early, in the turn of the early century, last century, we began to have income tax that had never existed before. Did you realize that? Oh, man, for the days when we didn't used to have income tax. Why did we do that? Because the moral fabric of society was breaking down. Because now we were no longer willing to take care of one another. Now we wanted things handed to us. And so let's let somebody else pay for that. So we create an agency or a government system. And that system begins to then distribute the wealth. So we tax certain people, give to certain others. In our society today, we just a couple of years ago passed the point where 51% now of all people receive some sort of government subsidy. That means every one of us who works carries on our back not only our family, but another family because we are trying to do an artificial redistribution of wealth that is not the way God intended it. God wants us to be able to understand how to care for ourselves and one another in a responsible way. So institutions and organizations basically got into this and they began to realize there's money in poverty. Big money. Big money. And now, if you can just find ways in which you can make people feel bad about what they have, back to Cedron's word this morning, where basically it's not bringing what God's asking, it's trying to come up with a means to supply something that he's not. Now, what you're doing is you're doing needs assessments. When you do needs assessments, trust me, it is a black hole that you never get out of. Once you begin to focus on what I don't have, I will always feel like, oh man, I'm disadvantaged in some way. I'm, I'm somehow, others have it better. I've seen this in, in places overseas where I've gone, where people will go in from the UN or whatever, and they'll do a needs assessment. And they're going down through, do you have running water? No. Do you have electricity? No. Do you have this? No. And the list just keeps going, no, 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 no. And eventually they get down the list and it says, do you have a flat screen, high definition TV? No. What is it? Never heard of it. But I want one now. You see? And now you've got strife, envy, all kinds of problems. Because instead of looking at what does God want you to bring out of your assets and your resources, now you're focused on what you don't have. When that begins to happen, all kinds of breakdown happens in society. 
And so the focus to redistribute wealth does not move people from, a good, from poverty to a good place. It just makes them feel more jealous and envious. Historically, we don't move people to wealth. We don't redistribute wealth. What we do is we redistribute misery. The $100 that you just gave is now no longer in your pocket. It went to somebody who probably does need it, but they've not learned how to steward it. And so now because they don't know how to steward it, they don't use it wisely. They lose it and you've lost it. Now you're both miserable. Redistribution of wealth doesn't help anybody. It creates misery throughout society. So most institutions and organizations are actually funded based on their numbers. Even Christian organizations that I've run into overseas, they say, well, look, we've got to do this because we get funding based on how many poor people we're feeding. And you can ask them, well, what are you doing to get them out and get a job? Well, the system doesn't work that way. You see, we don't get paid if we don't feed so many people. Woo, that's heavy. That should not be. We should be getting people out of these desperate situations. But the result is most of society's influential institutions have a vested interest in keeping the system. Keep it as it is. Keep people in need. Keep them where they want it. And, and then we do well and we make money off of poverty. Now, that may be not what they would verbalize, but it is the end result. So most governments and agencies are similar. They've implemented policies which result in people remaining dependent. They create a welfare state. Mankind loses dignity when that kind of behavior happens. Now suddenly, well, I can't do it on my own. I can't make it. I can't live without food stamps or whatever. I've got to have help. Well, wouldn't a job be better? A job that gives you both the income and the dignity that you deserve, that God created you to have. So funding is based on problem-oriented data. It's all about needs assessments. It's about Philip who said, well, 200 denarii is not enough. We can't feed all these people. Needs assessments tells us we fall short. Well, asset assessments tells us God has given you something. What is it? Fish and loaves, bring them here. So God's approach is completely different. The mass media loves it. Why? Because the worse the situation, the more it sells. So if we can talk about all the negatives, all the things that haven't gone well, now suddenly people want to watch our show, they want to read our newspaper, they want to stay on our, our program, and suddenly what you have is a media that can't stand it when there's not a problem. we got to have problems, we've got to make people feel like we need help somewhere. And so communities have little incentive to become producers in that kind of situation because if somebody's just going to give it to me, why do I want to work so hard? But there's no dignity in that. So we need to lay new foundations. As a nation even, we need to come back to our roots. 
We need to come back to what God initially placed in our understanding of how to do it. And that means that we need to then lay, again, that foundation of truth and anchor those stones into what Christ has told us and taught us. As we do that and we change our worldview, now we begin to realize that these biblical approaches are holistic and they impact every area of every life. In doing that, we will reform our values and our behavior and the fruit of our behavior will begin to be changed. So how do we do that? In a biblical worldview or a biblical belief system, we define our world and our universe as an open system. Last week, we talked about the humanist view being a closed universe. What I mean by that is that God is not a deist God. He did not sort of create the universe, throw it out there, and then go on vacation. God works with us. This morning, our times of prayer, those are real prayers that are breaking through in the heavenlies. These are not artificial things. These are not sort of just exercises that we do. We believe God breaks through into our universe. And there's transformation that happens because we invest real prayers to a real God who really cares. So as we do that, we realize that what we're dealing with is not something that is just an outward thing, but it is a spirit. It is an inner uh, impact in our lives that has created a problem for us. And what that is, is a spirit of poverty over our lives and over our culture. And what we have to understand, and I make a very strong statement here when I say this, but poverty is not a lack of resources. Now that may sound strange, but think about it a bit. The end's not yet, it's near, but stay with me. <laughs> what are we talking about? It is rooted in a culture of poverty, a set of ideas and values, remember the tree that we talked about, that are corporately held, and they produce certain behaviors which yields a certain fruit of poverty. So what that means is that basically not all the resources are limited. Some are, but we have to be good stewards of them and we have to see how we can handle them responsibly. We also need to use our creativity so that we can multiply and not just multiply, but multiply exponentially. I believe that some of the children in our church may be some of the ones who come up with brand new sources of energy, brand new ideas. They may find the cure of cancer. These things are all possible. Why? Because in an open universe, God begins to speak and give answers. So poverty is not the result of a lack of material goods or resources. Do you want to know what poverty is? You want to know what we've been waiting for now for our two weekends? <laughs> Poverty is broken relationships. Now you think on that for just a moment. It is not a lack of resources. It is broken relationships. You say, well, now wait a minute. Whoa, this is too radical. Well, let me ask a couple of questions. When did poverty begin? 
Any ideas? In the Garden of Eden. When? At the time of the fall, okay? So what you're telling me, if we all agree with this, is that, well, let me ask. Before the fall, was there poverty in the garden? No. After the fall, was there poverty in the garden? Yeah. So something happened at the fall. What did Adam and Eve lose at the fall? Did they lose their wallet? You know those pesky squirrels? I bet they stole it. <laughs> no, the squirrels didn't steal his wallet. You know how I know that? Adam didn't have a pocket to put his wallet in. <laughs> few late <laughs> catchers on. Adam did not lose access to his money because they didn't have any then. They didn't need it. He didn't lose access to the gold, the silver, the fruits on the trees, the timber, all those resources, nothing changed. It's all still there. Adam lost nothing in resources at the fall, which is why we must, as believers, understand that poverty is not about resources. Not at all. It exacerbates the problem, not the cause. Do you understand the weight of that? Trust me, what I just said in the last five minutes, the governments of this world spend trillions of dollars on. I wouldn't mind if they just gave me a tithe, but anyway. <laughs> we have been told a huge lie. A huge lie. And the lie is that it's all about resources and you and I, we got to fight over these resources. How many slices of pizza do we get? How much of the coal and the minerals do we get? All of these things are a humanist worldview. They have nothing to do with God's creation. They have nothing to do with how we live in relationship to him. So what did we lose? Relationships were broken. Let's take a look at this as we look at our sphere of relationships. And the zigzag lines mean broken relationships. What we lost was our relationship to the creator, first of all. Now we don't know who he is. We don't know how to appreciate him. We don't have relationship with him. It's all been destroyed. We also, and we could take all day just on this slide, but we also lost our understanding of who we are. Who am I? That mirror that was placed within my soul to reflect the image and the glory of God is now distorted. You know, it's like when you go to the, the carnival and they got these funny shaped mirrors. It's all distorted. It's all been messed up. Now, I don't know who I am. Ask any child who's going through school, what do you want to be when you grow up? Well, I don't know. Well, what, what would you like to? Well, I don't know. We don't know. We still don't know. And so all of that has been distorted. My relationship with my next, with the next person next to me, that's been distorted. Now we fight, we argue, we, we do whatever. All of that, did I go backwards? How'd that happen? I went the wrong way. Sorry. 
let you see the notes till we get there. It must have jumped. Okay. All right. So I guess I have them all up there. Basically, to others and then to the communities that we live in. Now, the communities have been messed up as well. How do we relate to people in poverty? How do we relate to people out there? We don't know. We don't understand. And finally, how do we relate to the resources and the environment and everything else? All of it's been broken. You and I are called to restore this. As Pastor Jade said this morning, it's not the end. We're not looking for some time down the future. The time is now. How do we work in our communities to bring transformation now? If we are so focused only on getting saved and going to heaven, we've missed most of the whole story. That is the doorway, and you don't get in without the doorway. But come on in and enjoy the fellowship and understand what this is all about. That is a holistic picture. So as we do that, there we go. The focus has to be on what is there. When I go to communities around the world, it can be a, a, an absolute ghetto. And the first thing I ask them, what are your resources? What are your assets? What do you have? I went to a place in North Jakarta, and I asked him, what are your resources? What do you have here? He said, it's a ghetto. Are you crazy? We don't have anything. And I said, well, when you look in the streets, what do you see? Trash. Okay, well, what kind of trash? Oh, all kinds of plastic and garbage that's been thrown away. And I said, well, is it recyclable? Oh, yeah, it could be. What else do you see? People unemployed. I said, well, that's a resource. Well, but they're not educated. They're not trained. So I said, so you're saying there are unemployed people are an asset and a resource who are waiting to be trained. Well, yeah, I guess they could. We set up a recycling plant right there, gathering all the, the garbage and the recyclable plastic and took it to a, a place that recycled it. And in seven months, the money we had invested was completely paid back. It was in the black. All salaries had been paid. The diesel motor that we had to wash and do all this was paid off. Everything was paid in seven months. That's the kingdom of God. When Jesus said, I want you to have some 30-fold, some 60-fold, some 100-fold, I used to think that was euphemistic. I used to think, wow, when I first even understood what a fold meant, a one-fold return. Do you know what that means? You invest $1 and you get 100% return. That's a one-fold. Jesus said 30-fold, 60-fold, 100-fold. That's 3,000% return, 6,000. 10,000, better than the banks here, isn't it? Better than most banks give. In these projects, we have gone well over 10,000%. They have not only done that, but now they've branched out and done other businesses and other things, taking the profits that they earned and building into it even more. The last time I was there, two of the guys had started in a chicken project. They said, we love doing what we're doing, but we'd like to grow some chickens, eat some more eggs, improve our diet. 
Last time I was there, they had 18,000 chickens laying eggs every morning. 18,000. This is because when you look at it through a different set of glasses and you begin to look at a biblical worldview, it changes everything. So we need to encourage people to build constructive societal models, train people to be agents of change. Each one of us here is an agent of change. We're to be involved in our community, work with those entrepreneurs, get their ideas going and get out there and begin to see the poor employed. Begin to see them involved in communities, involved in society, and bring change. What happens is relationships get restored, inner resources are identified, change is stimulated at all levels, both the personal and societal, and the capabilities begin to be developed, capacities are built, and sustainable, healthy societies are created. Once we begin to do that, and we focus on an asset-based community transformation approach, it changes everything. Now we're looking for the resources that do exist, finding those assets and developing them. We're not working with just transactions, but it's transformation that we're looking for. And as we do that, every person in every community with various societal um, sectors needs to be addressed. I've identified 12, doesn't matter how many we do, but there's animal husbandry and agriculture. People like Kirby, you're already involved in those things. Arts and entertainment, many people are involved. Economic developments, that's small businesses or any of these subsets that are in there. As we look at those, we begin to see how we can begin to be transforming the areas of education, family, government, water, health and hygiene, information communications and technology, infrastructure, the medical, the nonprofit, security, justice, and the rule of law. All of these sectors in society, probably somebody here is involved in already. And that's how we begin to build and transform our communities. So as agents of change, they can help communities if they do this. First of all, we accept a community as it is, where it is. We don't come down with judgment. We accept it and we begin to work with them. We engage, we build relationships, and we serve as a catalyst within that community to bring change. We also create change by influencing all of these different sectors. And we strategically nurture these communities to health. And then, once we begin to see transformed communities, we'll see a transformed nation. This is what it's about. We're not just going to do it in our little neighborhood. We're going to do it everywhere. So, what do we do? People are the wealth. We build into them. People are wealth because they're the real wealth. Remember last week I talked about wealth and real wealth? People are the real wealth. And God wants us to invest in them. He wants us to be creators of wealth. God's the only uncreated creator. We are created creators, and we are to help create wealth. People who do that should be compensated, and we should begin to look at what is the human life value that each person has. How can that gift and that skill set that God has given them be used to bring about transformation? It doesn't matter whether we're building decks on houses 
or what we're doing, it's imparting value and life and transformation in people's lives. So human dignity, that's who we really are. We contrast that with Pharaoh and his slave economy, where he used human life wealth to build his empire. That is not what the kingdom of God is about. It's about releasing people into all that God has created them to be. So that in their work and in their employment, there's dignity in what they do. And they see what, the, what they're producing as having value. So we want to recapture that and safeguard each of our identities and who we are and enable citizens to manage that identity and to build on it. So we need to develop policies that are God-given, that are anchored in a biblical worldview. As we do that, essentially the skills and the assets of the local community become evident. Significant community transformation only takes place when we begin to see that people invest in all that they have. They're fully mobilized, they're fully involved, they're committed to investing themselves and their resources and everything that they are. As we do that here in Colorado Springs, we will see transformation happen. As we begin to link arms and begin to live out a biblical worldview in the practical sense of the word in everyday life, we will see transformation. I believe Colorado Springs will be a community that is a light on a hill. That people will look at it, they'll see it, and they'll say, but whatever happened in Colorado Springs, I want to hear too. God is going to enable us to route out that spirit and mindset of poverty and transplant and, and, and replace it with that spirit of the kingdom of God and the way in which he's called you and me to build the kingdom here locally. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Antioch Church Sermon of the Week. For more information about us, visit AntiochCOS.com.